Welcome to another episode of the Frankie Lee Podcast. Our mission to empower others to break patterns, flip perspectives, so that together we have clarity, direction, and success way beyond what we ever previously thought possible. Here's your host, Frankie Lee. First things first, guys, before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor and subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now, whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button and it lets me know that the content that I'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time. Much love. This podcast is sponsored by contentremoval.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremoval.com. Welcome back to the Frankie Lee Podcast. Today we are in the top studio of the man himself, Mr. Rob Moore. He has 1,550 tenants in his property company. He's got an online educational business and he's absolutely sent it with his personal brand as well. And a top five, top two podcast in England right now? Um, I don't know about right now because it changes. Yeah. It has been second in the UK charts before. Um, but podcasts move up and down the charts like a horse draws. <laughs> so. If you look at the, if you look at the charts of a podcast, I think you you can become very demoralised very quickly. Yeah, you have to be careful yeah. not to define your own identity based on your rankings of anything you do, because you your self worth or your feelings can go up and down. But yeah, usually when you check in business minds in the top one, two, three. Well, Disruptors, I actually have two podcasts, but Disruptors is, and we've had some big, epic guests recently, so we're sort of trying to step it up. So Yeah, on it, for someone like me on the come up that's, that's looking at what you're doing, and obviously you've been doing it for what, what you've been trading the boards now for about five, six years, haven't you? Um, well, I've been an entrepreneur for 16 years, and I've had my podcast for seven and a half years. Best thing you ever did? What, podcast? No, um, marrying my wife was the best thing I ever did. <laughs> that is such a political answer. <laughs> it's not political. I, I was just looking at her yesterday, you know, in bed thinking, I am fucking lucky. I am really grateful to have you as my wife. That's what I thought yesterday. Um, was, that, so, was that scripted by her? No, no, no. So the podcast, Disruptors, has been one of the bigger and better things for my personal brand. Yeah. And that's helped my company brand too because without trying to be, my brand is one of the top lead sources for my training companies because I am quite well known with always more work to do, of course. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a granddad in the podcasting world and it's been good because I've met loads of amazing people and many of whom I've stayed in touch with and become good friends with, obviously people who are billionaires or hundred millionaires or very famous people. And that's good for your network. It's also been good because, because I was one of the early-ish ones. I'm sort of, I guess, seen as someone who's been in it a while. So that gives you some credibility. And I think even now podcasts, more and more people are doing them. It's still seen as a, a fairly serious thing. And of course, I mean, we had 28 million downloads and views in June, uh, which is the last month. So, you know, to me, that feels like a lot and that there's a lot of people that are watching or listening. So it's, it's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of ears, a lot of eyeballs on, on your content. And obviously with that, you can obviously monetize on the back end. 
but yeah. it, but but I think what what people don't often see is how much legwork goes up, goes goes in. I mean, you're when you're out getting a podcast, you'll be out for sixteen hours a day, won't you? Yeah. So I'm sort of split when it comes to answering these questions because on the one hand, what I do is the easiest hard work in the world. Yeah. I get to sit in a studio and have conversations with you and people like you. I get to sit in a board and essentially direct a hundred of my staff to, you know, go and help me make money. I get to travel to London to meet crazy famous big name people. I just recently interviewed Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, you know, that that's a big name and, that's not the sort of thing you normally get to do in your life when you're like me, come from nothing. So I fucking love what I do and it is the easiest hard work in the world because in the 60s and 70s, you know, our parents and grandparents were in the coal mines in the north, you know, inhaling poison, working 16 hours a day. So on the one side, what I do is fucking fun and fucking easy and I'm fucking grateful and I need to pinch myself and remind myself that every day that my problems are high class problems. Like I was just having a board meeting with Mark. I've got an aerial atom that needs a new engine, probably 12 grand. I've got a Ferrari Testarossa that needs basically half a new engine, probably four grand. And then, and so I've got the Lamborghini that I'm driving today. And yeah. I'm gonna, if I say that in the wrong way, I could sound like the biggest dick ever. But I have to. Rem- I do remember when I couldn't even afford to go out for a meal when I was going dating, and the women had to pay. So on the one hand, what I do is fucking easy and fucking fun. On the other hand, to be a podcaster, to build a personal brand, to build a company that does twenty million plus a year, to have a property portfolio of hundreds of properties, to manage probably we actually manage more like one hundred and fifty staff because of all the outsourcers, and to do look, you got three freaking expensive cameras yeah. there. So on the other hand, there's a lot of moving parts. So someone thinks they can just go and be a YouTuber and you know chat shit and make loads of money. Well, it's not no, there's a lot more to it. So there, that's how I feel. That's the honest answer to that question. Yeah, I, I love it because I, actually, I was saying to you before the podcast, <laughs> incidentally, three years ago when I came back to visit the family, I, I know how much of a pain in the ass that Lambo can be because I was broke down, like you were broke down in front of me on the on the roundabout, weren't you? Yeah, so. I got a lot of shit for that. <laughs> but I'd rather have shit breaking down in a Lamborghini. Lambo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you were saying how much hate you were getting online when people were driving past, and that. And that's what a, colours their Lamborghini? That's yeah, what, yeah, know? that's that's another yeah. thing. But like, let's let's just let's just take it back then with you because obviously I know your origin story, but a lot of my audience probably won't know your origin story. But obviously, as far as I understand it, obviously you you came from a background where your mum and dad had a pub together, and obviously you grew up in, in the pub life and, and helping out in the pub, helping out in the bar. Obviously, your dad had a bit of a breakdown and stuff. You had a few troubles when when you were younger. But at, what was it like going through all that, and then obviously deciding that you were going to become more entrepreneurial and, and go out and build what you've built today? Well, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur because, or at least. Probably, probably from the age of six, when my dad got me working in his pub, I liked how he had big wads of cash in his back pocket. I liked, like I even fold up money like my dad does. So I think it's always important to carry some cash because you never know when your phone goes dead yeah. and you never know when you might need it. And I think it's also good from an energy point of view. So I always just try and carry 500 quid or a grand or something. 
But he always used to fold it in half like that and he'd always want the queen head's face in the same way. So basically I looked up to my dad and copied all these things that he did. So being, a, he used to buy lots of property, pubs and bars and hotels and restaurants, whereas now I buy residential and commercial. Um, and running his own businesses and being the boss. You know, I, I wanted to run my own business and be the boss from the age of six. And then for me, the school system was wrong for me. You know, if you want to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, university at the moment, still a good viable way to do it. But actually, if you want to build a business, you can learn as much on my More Money Secrets channel on TikTok, or you can YouTube some real entrepreneurs who've done it, and you can kind of learn without going to school and university, and you can go on people's courses, and you can go and work in their companies and get mentors. So for me, the whole go to school, go to university, get your degree, get your master's, it just wasn't a fit for me. It was just completely wrong. But I, I went through that system. And the reason I went through that system is I didn't want anyone to think I was dumb. So I got really good grades at GCSE and A-level, not because I wanted to. I didn't even enjoy most of the subjects, but because I didn't want anyone to think I was thick, um, which isn't always bad. It's quite motivating to want to prove yourself. But then I did university degree in architecture. I wasn't interested in it, but I didn't want anyone to think I was thick. And then when it came to what you said, age 25, nearly 26, and my dad had this massive nervous breakdown in his pub full of all of his customers getting beaten up by the police and sectioned and then put in the mental ward of the hospital. I sort of had this realization that I've got to do what I want to do and stop worrying so much about what other people thought. So that's why I went to a property networking event. There I met my business partner, been in business together for 16 years and started a property company, worked for someone in a property company, then started building our own portfolio, then built the training businesses and everything else on top of it. So I'm just not meant to be anything else other than an entrepreneur. That is yeah. what I am. Um, so for you, the for system's just never going to work for someone like me. And for you, the, the, the key driver really then essentially is, free, is, is freedom of time, freedom of freedom of do, to do what you want to do when you want to do it, I suppose. Yes and no. This, I'm going to give you another on the one hand, on the one hand answer. Because yeah, no I, like, I like it. I yeah, like well, it. normally people just give you No, it's good to, it's good a, to be polarised. Yeah, yeah. It's good. There, so, sometimes there isn't one answer to any question. Well, there's two sides. So on the one hand, I can do what I want when I want within reason, as long as it's moral, eth ethical and legal. I can fuck off away for three months if I want. I don't. I can take a week off if I want. I don't. But I'm also really responsible. Because we were talking before we went online. And I'm responsible for like 150 people who are on my payroll. And I'm accountable to tens of thousands of customers. So I have freedom of choice in being an entrepreneur and running my yeah. own business. Yeah but I have way more responsibility, accountability, and stuff to lose than if I was employed. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Now, I personally really like that, whereas some people can't take that heat. Some people don't want to manage people and you know, pay millions in taxes, and you know, I'm responsible for all these buildings, and you know, our overheads, you know, I'll see our bills. You know, an 18 grand or a 50 grand or a 150 grand bill is a small bill for us a lot of the time in this business. And, so I, I, in some ways I have freedom, 
and I love, it's actually not about being my own boss. It's about the meaningful things I want to do with my life. There's no one in the fucking way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can just run as fast as I want that way. But when you run a company, you have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders and you have responsibility and accountability. Now, thankfully, I have a personal brand which originated from the word disruptive. So I can get away with saying some shit. Gerald Ratner, my friend, made one joke about his jewellery and lost everything. So if I owned a Fortune 500 company and I was in pharmaceuticals, there'd be a load of shit I couldn't say. I couldn't, I, I need to be able to be honest and express yeah, myself yeah, and yeah, say yeah. what I want. So yes, I have freedom and speed and agility, which, which I need. But I also have a lot of accountability and responsibility. And here's the thing, a lot of people don't want accountability and responsibility, but they don't understand that it's good for them. So we all know that a personal trainer is good for us, but when we get up that morning, we don't want to go to the gym because we know they're going to beast us. And when they're beasting us, we freaking hate it. But after they've beasted us, we love it. And that's the same when you run a company. You should go and approach and seek out the things that get you to step up and make you accountable, but they're uncomfortable and painful. And in the moment, you might not want to do them. But afterwards, when you're counting the money or you've got this big personal brand or you're doing something meaningful, you're pleased with yeah. it. So I have this sadistic nature in which probably three or four hours of the day, my emotions are screaming at me to go and do something more comfortable and easy. But the entrepreneurial mind that I've built is like, nah, nah I want to go straight in here. Like, this is what I want to do. Gamble. Go for it. So, for example, I'm um, going to... Um, going to run an event coming up in a few months and probably going to give away one of my cars and you know to give away a, which, which, which one well, are we talking probably the cheapest one <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in the boardroom talking about it and they're like no nah, you can't do that why can't we just give away 10 grand cash or something like that but it's not bold enough so you know on the one hand I like to make bold moves because I think bold moves get bold results but of course you know there's consequences of bold moves um, so the final message to anyone watching or listening would be the things that you're avoiding because you want to be comfortable, because the emotions in your body are screaming at you to run away from, they're the things you should face. Because in the moment when you face them, it's painful. Afterwards, you feel fucking amazing. And discipline is doing what you know you should do when you don't feel like doing it. Mike Tyson said he hated training, but he wanted to be a world champion. Yeah. What are some of the disciplines then that you had to do on the way to, to building this property portfolio to allow yourself the, the money so that you can go and build this personal brand? Um, some disciplines. Well, you've got to learn the game. A lot of people right now in the world, you know, with Instagram and TikTok and everything else, expect to um, be rich or famous in three and a half minutes. And maybe the kids can get, go more viral than the granddads like me. For anyone listening, I'm 43, so I'm not that old, but you know, I've been doing this nearly two decades. Um, and sometimes I actually have to learn from the kids to expand my thought process. Um, but discipline number one is learning the game you're in, getting to know it better than anyone else. Dis discipline number two would be that balance of patience, persistence and consistency. And most people don't break these out, but I'll break these out. So patience is doing what it takes for as long as it takes. And it probably means it's going to take a lot longer than you want it to take. Yeah, That's longer. patience. 
And at the end of the day, when I get into something, yes, I want it to happen quick, but I want it to happen long. I'm more interested in long than quick. So I won't get into something unless I want to be in it long. Um, consistency and persistence are different. And people don't understand this. So some entrepreneurs are good at persistence and bad at consistency and vice versa. So persistence means carrying on when it's hard. Consistency means carrying on when it's easy. So many entrepreneurs get in, go hard, go big, get bored. And my business partner always says, once it's boring, then I just want to keep doing it because it, it being boring means I know how to do it. So a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they're self-sabotaging because they've just got half decent at something and now they're not excited anymore and they're chasing the thrill instead of being great at something. So consistency is keeping on when it gets easy and boring. Persistence is keeping on when it gets hard. I'm actually pretty good at persistence. I actually come alive when it gets hard. And some people watching and listening will relate, whereby I know a few people who, you know, when it's easy, they're just kind of tuned out and lazy. But as soon as it gets really freaking hard, bang, all they're, of a sudden. They're dialed in. Yeah, yeah. Dialed yeah. In. Hu the hustle comes out of them. Resourcefulness comes out of them. So comfort is the enemy of greatness. So most entrepreneurs fit into either one of the camps. They either give up or quit when it's boring and easy, or they give up or quit when it's hard. And so I like it when it's hard, even though you know, the emotions don't always give you that feedback. You know, you've got fear, anxiety, stress, but that's just your natural body taking over of the survival part of your mind. But you know, all human beings have the ability to override with logic and think about, okay, you know, like right now with all the crazy shit in, in the world that we've got, well, anyone that's read more than five business books knows this is also one of the greatest opportunities out there. Everyone, everyone knows that. So di disciplines are learning yeah. and getting really good. Patience, persistence, consistency, and then leverage. So leverage is how can I learn from you the 30 years you learned in the discipline so I don't have to spend 30 years learning the discipline? I'll hire you. How can I build a 1,550 tenant property portfolio? <laughs> I, you were asking me to put a number on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it fluctuates. It's tens of millions. You know, it's, it, I don't think it's quite 100 million value yet. It's tens mm. of millions. But, but whatever. It's, it's, it's fuck you money, as they say. It's, it's enough money. It's, it's um, pounds, so equivalent from our Australian audience, it's, it's, it's Well, yeah, any, any other currency. Um, but leverage so that I can get someone else to fund buying those buildings and I can earn off the income. Leveraging a personal brand means, you know, for example, we've got three cameras here. So we can do YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, podcast, LinkedIn, Facebook with just this one interview. Yeah. You can put it on your channels, yeah. I can put it on mine. So... That fifth discipline of leverage. You know, you have to work hard enough not to have to work hard. But then you come to a point where you can't do any more work because you can't sustainably do 12, 16 hours a day every day. So yeah, there's a point where go big or go home and go all in and work hard and hustle is actually counterproductive. You have to hire staff. You have to go strategic. You have to do partnerships and collaborations. You have to find a way to reach a, a bigger audience. 
So of the five, leverage is probably the biggest discipline, I would say. But, you know, you have to, like I said, you have to set to forget and work hard enough not to have to work hard. When you, when, when COVID came along for your business, I saw you make a massive, obviously had to, everyone had to make a massive pivot, but you guys made a massive pivot and a very profitable pivot from, from the looks of it on the outside, from my point of view, a very profitable pivot into the online training space. And I'm sure from, from the outside looking in, from my perspective, it looked very fast and efficient way that you pivoted into that. I mean, was it, was it like that for you? Because obviously yeah. you scaled it massively. It actually was fast and efficient. And I, I'm not particularly a bragger. And I'm, my critics would disagree, but I'm actually not that good at patting myself on the back of stuff I've done well. But the pain of COVID and the lockdown and the uncertainty and lack of control we had in this business made our senior team scared. And I probably wasn't as scared as, I was probably the least scared, but in turn, I don't generally get that scared, but I was definitely up on the scareometer. And it was the fear that drove us to create one new, really good, thoroughly researched online course per week for the first 10 weeks of the lockdown. And I was really proud of that. That's probably one of our biggest achievements. I've got others like, you know, I retired my mum and dad and they don't need money. That's a great achievement of mine. I've broken world records for public speaking. It's a pretty good achievement. I've written 18 books, you know, pretty prolific. But creating one really good, credible online course a week for 10 weeks is a, a, a miracle because it would take us nine to 18 months to create a course before lockdown because, you know, a good three-day course, well-researched with a lot of experience takes time. But they say that necessity is the mother of invention. So I worked, I worked from 3 stroke 4 a.m. until 11, 12 p.m., 1 a.m. for a few weeks straight. Um, when that initial lockdown was announced, because I had never seen that before. I had no, I had no mentor to call. What, what happens when there's a lockdown? I don't fucking know, because I was dead when the, you know, I wasn't alive when the last one happened. Um, what happens when there's a pandemic? I don't know, because the last one was nearly 100 years ago or whatever. So no one knew what to do. Um, but looking back, you know, that fear was a great driver and a great motivator. So, yeah, we did. 2020, the year of the lockdown, I think it was March 2020, wasn't it? That was one of our most profitable years. Not the most, but one of our most. Um, and, you know, we had to let some staff go, but we kept most of them, which was a really good achievement as well, because we could have just let them all yeah, go yeah, and yeah. gone back into our bedrooms, but we didn't. Um, and we achieved that because... It, it was obvious what the mission was. Get all of our trainings from London and Peterborough and in a masterclass onto Zoom. That sounds easy. That's not easy. That, that's, that's something we could take two years not to do. But it was so clear what the mission was. And everyone was so concerned about, well, we, our sales might go from 20 million to 2 million overnight. Because that was a real possibility. So looking back, Great lesson. Because you had a public speaking business as well, didn't you? We still got that, yeah. Um, 
because obviously that was killed overnight because obviously with everything that was going on with, all, with everything locked down, so that you, you get no. Well, we had a we had a, a property networking franchise with about thirty locations completely dead overnight because you can't do networking um, online. It didn't really work. Like you said, we've got um, our expert speaker revolution um, five day speaking course. It's not the same doing public speaking on Zoom. So what we had to do, thankfully, we had. We probably got 20 different courses that we that we run in our training businesses, property business, personal development, that kind of stuff. So we focused on the core ones, the ones that probably were the most scalable, the ones that people wanted the most, um, the ones that you know our trainers and partners were committed to delivering. Yep. All questions you should ask when you're delivering and building a new training vertical. But like... Today, as we speak, I'm faced with some repercussions of making bold and fast decisions. I will take those repercussions because I think that making bold and fast decisions, you will win more than you lose. And if you lose, you lose quick. And then you can make another fast and bold decision. So that's kind of how you have to move those as, as, as a... On the, you were saying before the podcast that progressive and its group of companies is classed as a small to medium business, even though yeah, you are. Yeah, it's an SME. It's right on the, it's right on the cusp. It, it's, it? it's sort of moving into a medium sized enterprise. So, so, so I, don't, I don't need a $100 billion company. Why do I need that? It's not. Yeah, yeah. but what, what I mean is, like uh, at that, that end of town, you know, you, 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 have to, you have to move and think about certain stuff later, don't you? Because otherwise you're not going to be able to outmaneuver the bigger people in the town, right? Yeah, well, Richard Branson always used to say when his team's got to sort of 30, 35 people, he'd break them up and he'd have, he much prefers to have sort of lots of smaller companies. You know, I've got progressive property, progressive su success. I've got my own personal brand, which I guess we would class as a vertical. We've got a media agency. So even though we've got a... 20-ish million a year, give plus or minus, depending on pre or post-COVID. In, in reality, I've got four or five, three, four million companies, one of them seven, eight million. So inadvertently, we sort of followed that Richard Branson model because you're not lean when you get to a certain scale. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I want to scale, but I like being agile as well. Yeah. Do you do you kind of might sound a bit woo woo to you, but do you kind of vision things in your mind of how you want them to be? So, like, do you have do you have an overarching vision of how you want your whole set of companies to look and what kind of revenue numbers you want to do and everything like that? Do you kind of vision that out yourself, or is is or is it just literally like go as hard as possible and get as much as possible and just keep going like that? It used to be go as hard as possible and get as much as possible and do revenue targets and growth targets and go to bed visualizing the script that I got from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I command the power of my subconscious mind through the infinite laws of the universe to attract into my life. That's pretty much verbatim the quote that Napoleon Hill in his book used to recite in his mind when he used to create the mastermind in his mind. Um, so I kind of do it all. Um, nowadays when I'm 43 as soon as my head hits the pillow I'm out I command the <laughs> so I don't do the visualisation so much anymore but do you think it's made a difference I mean 
obviously now with the success that you've had and the, and you know the millions of pound companies here and there and the property portfolio it's obviously it's it's easy to look and and think you know that was hard work and determination but how much how much do you put down to it being part of your vision well hard work that's not smart is stupid and at times in my career, I've done hard work. You know, like a, those little dogs that hump your leg. They, they hump your leg fucking hard and fucking fast. <laughs> and the harder and faster they hump your leg, nothing's going to happen. So I, I'm not necessarily, it's all about hard work and hustle. I've worked as hard as many of them. And I've had three months taking my son around the world when he was playing the World Golf Championships and I've had retirements and semi-retirements and all sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm a hard thinker. And by the way, everyone that meets me thinks I'm the hardest working person they know. I'm probably the hardest thinking and the hardest ideating person they know, but I am not the hardest worker. You know, yeah, I get up at 5.30 a.m. and yeah, I start work at six, but I'm mostly thinking and are mostly trying to solve problems and have big ideas. Is that hard work? Is it work? Depends how you define it. It's a pretty fucking cool job. Um, so visualization is important because you wouldn't get in a car and just drive without putting your destination into satnav. So the targets and the goals are important because you've got somewhere to shoot for. And without that, you're aimlessly humping random legs like the little dog. Um, but there's a lot of people that think the law of attraction is going to save their life and they're into the yeah, law of yeah. attraction and they're into manifestation and their skin. And they're trying to launch their meditation and mind meditation, not so much. Their manifestation and visualization course. Yeah. Where's their millions that they manifested and visualized? Well, they're just launching a course on it. So, by the way, I've got no problems with anyone launching a course. I've done hundreds of millions selling courses, but my courses are practical, like how to buy property or how yeah, to be a public speaker. Or how speaker. to package properties or how to do no money down Yeah, deals. or how to start and scale your podcast or, you know, they're how-to practical courses. Um, so... In the world, in the universe, you have the material and the spiritual. You have the physical and the ethereal. And let me see if I can get this quote right. Is this a, a Demartini quote? It is. I knew, I knew you were pulling out. And he's nicked this off someone else. Um, spirit without matter... is motionless. Matter without spirit is expressionless. I'm pretty sure I've got that the right way around. So spirit, you can't see it, you can't feel it. But if you look at a piece of art that moves you, or you listen to a song that moves you, I just got goosebumps. I, I watched the Liam Gallagher documentary yesterday, his new one, and Supersonic came on. You gotta be yourself. You know that one. And you felt you it. You can't be no one else. That is 
spirit manifested through material instruments that creates emotion. The music without the, the, the drums and the guitar without the spirit of Liam and Noel, they're just rocks. They're just inanimate objects. But you need those inanimate objects as the conduit. So what I'm saying here is you need spirit and matter. So in my mind, spirit is idea, visualization, manifestation, incantation, law of attraction, energy, frequency, all of this stuff. And I do subscribe to a lot of that. But matter is the physical, tangible shit that you do, the work, the actual manifestation of it. So anyone who's meditating and visualizing and manifesting, that has to turn into a physical form at one point. And here's what most of them do. Something happens and they go, ah, that's because of my visualization. Or something happens that they don't like and they don't credit it with their visualization. So what goal setting does is tune you into where you want to go. So for example, I worked out about six months ago, that 30,000 new followers a week will mean I've got in 4 million extra followers by the time I'm 50. Yeah. So now I've got a goal whereby I can track every week, am I plus or minus on the 30,000 new followers? I also know that with 4 million followers, I could probably make 4 to 8 million a year in revenue from that. One, I'll, I'll, one to two dollars yeah, a follower. Yeah. Exactly, one to two pounds or dollars per follower. So working all that out and setting that goal is important. But I still have to go and do two Facebook Lives a day. Still have to do these interviews every day. I still have to go and go down to London and do interviews with celebrities and famous people who move your diary around left, right and centre. And we have to bring all these cameras. I mean, Joe came with, with us for a day and it was fucking mad, wasn't it? Matt Hancock to interview him, booked at nine o'clock, fucked around left, right and centre, got it done at four o'clock. And Joe had to go back and forth all the way through London, lugging about eight cameras. Oh, that's an exaggeration. I think it was three or two. And we had to go in and get security through um, the, um, what was the building called? Portcullis. That's it, Portcullis House, which is right next to the Houses of Parliament. Oh, and in the middle there, who did we interview in between? Alfie. Alfie Best in the middle and, you know. So the reality of getting that, I, I could have I'm visualised that I'm getting Elon Musk on my podcast. But there's a fucking load of work to be done to make that happen as well. But they're probably both. Because to get Elon Musk on your podcast, you've got to decide, I want Elon Musk on my podcast. And you've got to really think about, okay, what can I do to get Elon Musk on my podcast? So, for example... You're, I, you're only over three people away, aren't you? Well, I, don't, I think five, maybe. I don't know. I don't think I'm three people away from... I'm actually one person away from Elon Musk. So maybe you're right. This, is it five or six degrees of separation? Um, but set the goal... Be clear and specific and take actions and opportunities because you have to take opportunities. People think you create them, you make them, you manifest them. No, you have to take them. Like, I spent my whole youth not asking girls I liked out on dates because I was too fucking scared. And I used to think, why am I always single? And I think back, to all these girls that I liked. And you didn't ask them out. And I didn't ask them out. So the universe had my back. 
Because it was presenting nice girl after nice girl after but, nice but, girl. But, after. but, but, but the, the action... But hold on. And here's the stupid thing as well. Do you know, I retrospectively found out, not all of them, but some of them, liked me too. But I was too shit scared of getting but a rejection. You, but if you'd asked them out, you wouldn't have this beautiful wife that you now have now because you might have took a different path. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know... No, but I'd have got laid more in my late teens, <laughs> early 20s, and I'd have taken that, you know. <laughs> so, but, the, but, you know, no regrets and yeah. all that. But so, so, yeah. so, so, so in essence, then, what you're saying is that a lot of people out there are trying to manifest, visualise, and, 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 and feel it and all this stuff, but then, but then not taking the action to go and get, get the thing. Attraction without action is a distraction. You need both. You can't have spirit without matter. Spirit without matter, you cannot see it. Yeah. But matter without spirit is a dead pebble. A, a drum kit without an amazing drummer is just matter with no expression. But the expression of, you know, the, the swagger of Liam Gallagher is spirit. See, spirit and matter, you need both. You know, I make this argument in my book, actually. You know, a lot of people say that money, you know, it's greed and power. But, you know, I've got a 1987 Ferrari Testarossa. And there is spirit and beauty and art in that. And, you know, I've got a lot of watches that have got intricacy and spirit and passion and emotion in them. So money is a very spiritual thing. People don't understand that it is, but... If we exchange some money, you gave some of your, let's say you're a passionate shoemaker. Yeah. You put your passion and your energy into making shoes and I give you money for those shoes. So money is the conduit, the expression of your passion and enthusiasm. So money is as spiritual as spirituality itself. People so don't it's understand a, it's that. It's a transfer they, of energy. Yeah, they separate things. Pe human beings try to go... Oh, you know, the left versus the right, you know, the far left communism, the far right fascism or extreme capitalism or whatever. People try and separate the atom and it's right or wrong. It's good or bad. It's fair or unfair. There is fair and unfair, good and bad, right and wrong, easy and hard, left and right, male and female in everything. So back to this question of visualization versus action, it's both. It's, but I have never seen anyone, because if it wasn't both, I'd lay on my bed and masturbate all day, every day, <laughs> while the millions came in. That's, you know, if it worked, if, if, yeah. so basically if visualisation and manifestation and the law of attraction really worked without action, someone will be laying on their bed, masturbating, rolling around in millions. So essentially what you're saying is... Stop wanking and start winning. Stop wanking, start doing it. Stop wanking, start working. Um, but aimless work, like the dog humping the leg, is also, the, it's the other extreme, mm. isn't it? Because, you know, how many people, unfortunately, work really hard for minimum wage and they're not earning as much as people who are on benefits? That's also a truth. So you have to get the balance right. But every day I ask, this is the most important question I ask myself every day. What's the best use of my time right now? And sometimes it's an idea, and sometimes it's a graft. And 
I suppose in in essence, sometimes you'll change your whole day predicated on what that that what that idea is. If it's if it's well, that's again talking about polar opposites. Some days you get a distraction, and you've got to push that distraction away because what you're doing today is more important than that distraction. Sometimes you've got a plan today, and this distraction just came in, and that usurps that plan. Mm. And so you've got to take mm. on this distraction. And I guess wisdom is knowing which one to focus on. Talking about which one to focus on, just pivoting back to, to your properties. A lot of people that listen to this podcast, they may have a mortgage, they may be in a job, but they want to get into property. Because property, if you, look on, if you look at what's made most millionaires, it's property, right? You've got commercial, you've got residential, right? And you've got other asset classes too, but like, let's just go with the two main. Would you, would, would someone who's starting out be better off to go into, build it as a residential portfolio or would they be better off going in as a commercial portfolio? Well, this is not what people want to hear, but honestly, nearly every answer should start with, it depends. So if someone doesn't have much knowledge of property investing or experience, it's probably better to start with residential because it has least moving parts and it's a little bit more simple and more universally accepted, easier and more simple to get a resi or a buy-to-let mortgage, kind of standard 70% buy-to-let yep. loan-to-value. To buy a residential property, is, you can walk into an estate agent, yep. but to buy a commercial property is a bit different more moving parts, more complicated. So if anyone's listening and they're starting out, go and buy a couple of buy-to-lets. Lower risk, because you're probably going to spend less money because the cheapest residential is probably quite a lot cheaper than the cheapest commercial, depending. But, um, However, if someone wants to be a full-time property investor and they've got a bit of experience and they want to scale up and they want economies of scale, well, I just said to you before when we were off air, one of my buildings has 99 tenants in it. It's 130-ish thousand square foot. To have 130 tenants in single lets, I've got to have 130 individual two or three bed houses. So there's economies of scale in, but that was a five-year project and, you know, t so, ten, eight-figure development loan. So how many, how many residential properties did you have as a portfolio before you started to pivot into commercial? We'd probably bought, whether it was for ourselves or also sourced for others, because that counts of, of the experience, at least 50 yeah. before we got our first multi-let. Yeah. And our first multi-let would have had six individuals in it. It was near the hospital. And then we do self-contained flats of six. We did one where I think it had 23 self-contained flats. We bought a building and converted it into 23 flats. So a fair few. See, I was but that took us two years, two to three years. So it was quite so, because you know we did property full time, went for it big. Obviously, I've spoke to a few people that do property like yourself on this podcast in Australia and the UK, and from the outside looking in, it seems a no brainer for me to go commercial. But when I was looking at like allocating capital today and and what I'd be better off doing, I thought to myself, you know, I'd be better off buying five five buy to lets myself because it would be an easier deal to do that than it would be to go out and get this commercial piece over here. Well, there's definitely a lot more work and a lot more moving parts and a lot more complexity in managing a commercial property. But it's different. 
So the value on a commercial property is completely different the way they value it based on compared to a residential. A residential is based on vacant possession, the value of the bricks and mortar without a tenant. But the value of commercial is driven significantly by the tenant. So if you tried to buy an empty building with no tenant in commercial, it'd be cheap. If you got a building with a 20-year lease on McDonald's, it'd be really expensive. Because 20-year lease with McDonald's is a guaranteed 20-year income. So they've, even the way you value them is yeah. really different. But getting a letting agent and getting an AST standard tenancy agreement and getting a single person or small family into a buy-to-let is easier for, for someone with not a lot of experience than trying to find a commercial tenant and managing a commercial property. But there are upsides of commercial economies of scale. The tenant pays for the refurb, whereas you pay for the refurb, the landlord does yeah. in the residential. Um, the quality of the tenant makes a big difference. Once you get your 20-year lease, boom. But getting your 20-year lease... Is another thing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it, you're best off moving up the chain. You know, when you pass your test in a car, you probably drive a Volkswagen Polo. You don't get a Lamborghini. So you, you, I always say it's best best moving up the ladder. So it's literally like like with anything. Then just do do the reps in the in the residential. Get your get your experience, and then go into commercial and pivot into that. Yeah, move up, yeah. move up the chain. You, you know, when you do martial arts, you start with the white belt and you move up the gradings. Do you, do you think then a lot of the problem comes because like like I follow a lot of influential people on Instagram. You probably do. Everyone that's listening probably does. Do you reckon then a lot of the a lot of the problem is then a lot of us are looking at the wrong targets and like obviously there's there's 15 years of experience between me and you in what you've executed. So I could look at you and be like, I want to do what Rob does, but there's fucking 15 years of gap there that I don't know about, but I'm trying to execute what Rob does here, but I've not got the experience. So are you, do you think that people should should pick a, a more not a lower target, but a target that's more representative of, of, of someone who's a few steps ahead rather than someone who's a fucking country mile ahead like Grant Cardone. Yeah. So again, this is I've got a, a split answer to this. Um, on the one hand, you do want to learn from people a good few steps ahead of you. Yeah. Because that will more quickly drag you up. So I used to do a lot of martial arts and I stopped in my 20s when I started business. I shouldn't have done, but I did because I just put my energy into business. But I'm actually just starting again. Um, and I'm going to do, I always said to myself, when I get to my 40s, I'll stop doing all the fancy kickboxing, high kicks and all that, that I used to do. And I either do um, Wing Chun or Krav Maga, actually practical on the street, useful um, martial arts. And for me, I, want, I don't want someone who's one or two grades ahead of me. I want someone who's been doing it for 35 or 40 years, who's the shit hot don. I want Steven Seagal in my house, just <laughs> flipping me over his head with his little finger. Yeah. That's what I want. You, you could even film a budget movie. If you yeah, want. yeah, yeah. He'd love that. He would, yeah. <laughs> so in some ways, going for the big mentor is smart, but you have to contextualize it. So you know, I'm friends with Grant. I know Grant well. And, you know, going around raising billions of pounds for, you know, massive development blocks. Most people that watch him would be fucking stupid to try and do that first off. They should be buying little individual single lets. 
So you want to go and get, you want to learn from the best, but you've then got to contextualize it into your life and where you're at. And that's the hard bit. So I, I, I have a lot of competitors. I've trained most of them, many of them, half of them, a lot of them. And I always chuckle when I look at what they're doing because they're, they should be copying me where I was 14 years ago but or they, 15 years yeah. ago, but they're copying me where I am now. And it's suicide, financial suicide. You know, don't, we've just done a five-year, 130,000 square foot, 99 apartment, tens of millions of pounds development project in the centre of Peterborough. Is that the old job centre? It, no, it's the um, old Marks and Spencers building. Right, yeah. Now B&M and all the back. Anyone with less than 10 years experience in property is on crack cocaine if they are going to copy us doing that. They are idiots. <laughs> like, I, I would not get in the ring and fight Conor McGregor. I would, I would get knocked out in 20 seconds. Because I ain't ready. <laughs> so you make, a, I'm glad you raised this because a lot of people don't talk about this. I do think you should try and get the best mentors you can who are way ahead of you and learn as much as you can and want to be where they are and all that and then go, right, where am I in my life now? And then figure out what you can take from them that's relevant and follow some people who are two years ahead of you and take what's them. A good thing to do, like anyone who wants to get into buy to let, they should find my YouTube videos from 12 or 13 or 14 years ago and watch them. Because that's when I was talking about 20, 30 and 50 properties and single lets and buy to lets. Or read the first book I ever wrote, Property Investing Secrets was the first one in 2008. So yes, get the big dogs. Yes, follow people way ahead of you and then contextualize it for your situation and go and learn either some of their early shit or learn from people who are quite a bit closer to you as well. All right, then I'll ask you this. If for a lot of the audience that are listening, right, they want a business that's going to earn them a million pounds or a million dollars, because that's what most people's targets are if they've not got there, right? Well, that's not enough. It's, it's not, it's not, and we both know that. But like, let's just, let's just contextualise it so it's easy. If you were getting, with everything, obviously you, you've done a horrendous amount of different businesses and, and models and all this kind of stuff. But if you were gonna, if you were gonna pick one right now in terms of to execute fastest way to to a million pounds dollars in 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 you know in in the timeline, what would you pick? Joe, could you just is that right? If you just top that up with some cold, I didn't drink much in our ball meeting. This is actually quite an easy answer for me, but. It has nothing to do with property, nothing to do with e-commerce, drop shipping. I believe the best way with no experience and no money or little experience and little money, but in the quickest possible way to get your first million revenue in the bank is by having a subscription based business model. Netflix, HelloFresh, 
Volvo are now doing car buying on subscriptions. Sky. Is this why, is this why you've gone hard on subscribers on Facebook? On Rob's Facebook. team. Yeah, yeah. Facebook. So I have a membership site. It's called Rob.team. And when you say gone hard, you actually mean gone consistent. Because all I've done, thank you, Joe. All I've done is one, on average, 10, 12-minute Facebook Live video a day. That's all I've done for the last 75 days. And I've gained 1,500 members to my membership site. So it's, you know, just over 20 members a day. That's not gone hard. That's gone consistent. Um, and I, I was smashing it out on Clubhouse, and that was going hard because it was hard because there's a lot of hours in Clubhouse, and it's very distracting. But we did eight, I did 800 grand in trickle-down revenue from Clubhouse. From Clubhouse in one year. You did 800 grand from Clubhouse? 800 grand in trickle-down revenue, which means people who listened to me on Clubhouse then came and did my courses and masterminds. And I became, I think, the 80th highest followed person on Clubhouse in a year. Is Clubhouse even a thing now? Or is it shut down? It's, it's a thing and it's not shut down, but it's not like it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, many platforms aren't like it was. So, um, and I got... I got an initial few hundred or low thousands of members from Clubhouse. But after a year, I couldn't put the 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours a day in and all the peripheral energy you needed because it's a big commitment. So I basically retired from doing Clubhouse and I thought, well, I do Facebook Lives every day anyway. Why don't I try and pitch Rob.team at the end of it? And it, I always thought it's not quite going to work because it's a bit clunky. And Anyway, it works. It just fucking works. Um, I do 10, 12-minute live. The pitch is about two, three minutes at the end. Anyone can go on my Facebook page, at Rob More Progressive, and see me do it every single day. Now, at £30 a month, how many members do you need to get a million? Let's have a look. It's so your question was, how do you get to a million the quickest? So one million... Divided by £30 a month, divided by 12. You need 2,777 members at £30 a month, and in a year you've done a million pounds. Subscription business. And essentially, how you're structuring that is then nine, ten minutes of value, two minutes pitch at the end of Rob.team, and that's how you're doing it off Facebook Lives. Yeah, so how I'm pitching in to Rob.team which is like a financial resource membership site where people can learn about business and money from me and my millionaire mentor guests. The, the standard model is 8.30 a.m. I go live, do some news jacking, and I see if I can pivot into my pitch at Rob.team. My, my actual content lasts anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes, depending on how big the content is and how much of a rant I go into. And my average pitch lasts anywhere from 2 minutes to 5 minutes, depending on how well I can weave it in. Um, so I do that every day. I've missed two days just because I was filming a TV show. But then I made it up by doing two in a day. And then I'll go live again at 8 p.m. and I'll do something similar. So I'll make sure, on average, I get at least one pitch in a day. And I've been doing that for... Um, it's, either, it's either 70 or 77 days in a row. So there's a consistent. So it's not just the consistency that's led to your success, and it's it's the fact that you you pitch at least once a day. 
because oh, it's consistency, bit, isn't it? No, but what I'm saying is no. The consistency of turning up and creating the content. I mean, I mean, but you're but you're, pit, you're pitching to sell every day. This is where a lot of people aren't. What a lot of people aren't doing. A lot of people have got consistency in what they do, but they're not pitching to sell something at the end of it. Yeah, like is your mum going to sell it for you? No. Is your husband or wife going to sell it for you? No. Are your haters going to sell it for you? No. Even your fans aren't going to sell it for you. You need to sell your products and services. I have absolutely no qualms selling myself. And as far as I'm concerned, if I've been doing Facebook Lives for eight years and podcasts for seven and a half years and YouTube for eight years, I have done, it must be more than a million hours of content. I mean, when you work it out, because I do a lot of repurposing across all those channels, I fucking deserve the right to pitch you, motherfucker. You know, I've done a million hours of free content, you bastards. And you're saying I can't do a five, six pound a month pitch? Yeah, Fuck yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. I'm pitching. I have earned the right. Yeah. I do shit loads of content. But no one's going to sell it for me other than me. I like, you know what? I actually honestly think that the seven years I did content and didn't pitch Rob.team, I did a massive disservice to all those people for seven years. Because by the way, where's their better value? All my free content or paying six or seven pound a month in Rob.team? Infinitely better value yeah. in Rob.team. And here's the thing, free advice is worth every penny. So people mostly don't, you could get the best free advice and people don't use it. You know, just like the book that you got given that you never read and the PDF download you downloaded on your computer that you never read. But when you pay, you pay attention. So um, I can... Remember I said earlier, right? I'm not interested in going hard. I'm interested in going long. So um, I just said to myself when I started my TikTok, I'm just going to do a video every day for a year and see what happens. I didn't have any target of how many followers. I didn't really, I didn't have a fucking clue what to do and I didn't like doing it. But I thought if I'm going to give TikTok a chance, then I'm going to do a video a day for a year and see what happens. And we got to the year and I think we were between 100 and 130,000 followers. That's not bad for a year. Then I started another channel and we just hit 120,000 followers in less than six months. I'm going to start another one. And maybe I'll hit 100,000 in three months or two months. But each one of those channels, I'm doing them and I'm committing to do them for 10 years. So I'm going to pitch Rob.team every fucking Facebook Live for the next 10 years, unless it just completely stops working anymore and doesn't work. I think I do everyone a disservice if I don't pitch them into Rob.team. Like, it's an unbelievable value. But I think... The issue people have with selling is they don't like rejection. They're worried about what people think about them. Or they fundamentally don't think what they're selling is worth it. Is that not, is that not an internal issue with self? Like, does that not come into like self-worth as well? Well, rejection, self. Um, not feeling you're worth it, self. Value, self, but also look at the market. 
So there's loads of people charging 50, 100, 150, 200, and 500 pounds a month for a subscription platform. So why couldn't you charge 30? Yeah. So that's just a, a practical, well, I could charge 30 if others are charging 50, 100, and 500. So sometimes it's just a logistical thing. But actually, the value thing is often, I don't believe I'm worth it. Or usurping that is often, I'm worried about what people will think about me if they reject me. Yeah. So, by the way, I don't like rejection, but I'll face it. I sometimes take rejection personally and sometimes don't feel like a warrior. Yeah. But I'll face it. Every day I feel insecure about something or anxious or... Is it trepidatious? Is that a word? Reticent, lacking in confidence about certain things. Every fucking day. But I guess what entrepreneurs, good ones do, is they face that every day. And, um, but when it comes to Rob.team, it's such good value... I don't feel the rejection. It's and such the, good value, fuck the, up. The, crit the critics can all fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, there's, that, there's that, every time you try and do something in life, there's thousands of critics that come out, come out of the woodwork. I love critics. I, I learn more from my critics than I do my fans. My critics keep me on my toes. The critics are absolutely brilliant for the algorithms. I love my critics. And do you know what? When I, I'll have some people trolling me. It's actually not trolling. There's, I think people use the word trolling too loosely. I'll have critics criticizing me on my lives. And you know, I'll just ignore them. No, don't ignore them. Fucking have a dance with them. Prove them that they're wrong. Have some banter with them. My videos always do better when there's a bit of ding dong with me pointing out some of my critics posts. Nearly always. I look at the ones that have gone viral and usually they've got some me lambasting the, the like, to be honest, some of the things my critics say are just stupid. One said, Rob earns 22 grand a year. No, I earn 22 grand a day. You know, <laughs> like, what sort of fucking stupidity is that? And then, you know, it, it'll say something else. Oh, yeah, well, Rob's only given 30 grand away to charity. Well, it's 30 grand more than you have. Well, it's not. It's seven figures. Where did he come up with that shit? Every time I do charity raises, people are like, oh, you're just getting the money from everyone else. You're not putting your hand in your own pocket. But isn't a charity something that raises money from people? Isn't that what... Oh, and what about the hundreds of thousands? I have dipped in my own pocket. So I like having a bit of a ding-dong and prove them wrong. And any time I do that, I get more views. So keep yeah. coming, motherfuckers. The, the TikTok comments are where, where everyone seems to like, love having a row. Oh, by the way, I don't read it. I've never read a TikTok comment ever. I, I, I There's no point. I don't, That's I, a waste of time. I don't respond or, or I just looked through them the other day and I thought there's a lot of comments on this post. And I read through them and it's just people arguing with other people in the comments. I'm like, this is crazy. It's just oh, driving. Oh, by the way, your best post will have the most of that in. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I like that and you want that to happen. But I only engage with critics in lives. I don't never, I mean, I've had, I get tens of millions of views a month on my TikToks. So I'm not going to read the comments because there's fucking thousands of them. I, no. I mean, I know a lot of people who read TikTok comments and they're an emotional wreck and they take it really personally. And I, I think the TikTok haters are, you know, quite up there in the league table of 
<laughs> wanky haters. <laughs> I, I think they're brutal. I've never read a TikTok yeah. comment. Yeah. I, and that's another thing, like, for a lot of people that listen to this is, like, don't read the comments. Don't look at, don't look at all that stuff. because well, it's, 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 it's Two gonna... ways of looking at this. I'm going to do the two-way again. If you are brittle and your weekend is ruined and your emotions are shattered by one critic, you have to look in the mirror and go, am I made for this shit? i just got to be honest with you, Frankie. That's what you've got to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Donald Trump, he, he would sit in an auditorium with 500,000 critics in the auditorium and say, bring it on, bitches. You know he would. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he has developed the resilience and the toughness and the mental strength to handle them. So every critic is sent to you as a gift to develop your resilience, to prepare you for the next level. So a lot of people say, don't read them, don't engage with them, block them, delete them. I get that. And often I'll do that. Mm. But often I'll go and have a read and I'll go and face them and confront them. Because the only way you transcend how they affect you is by facing them. So you've got to be careful when avoiding them because you're running away from it. I watched one of your um, lives the other day and what you were talking about was obviously with this impending recession that we are globally heading into or, or we are in with inflation running rife and everything like that, you were saying that get your cash out the bank, get your cash out the bank, go and put your cash into assets. What, what assets would you, if, if for people that have a sums of cash in the bank, what assets should people be looking at investing in? other than building this subscription business over here that generates some revenue, but what, what other things would you be putting your money into? Right. I am going to warn everyone, mark my words on this, there are multiple attacks on your cash right now. Number one, tax will go up. Number two, inflation is not at its peak yet. I think we all know that because, yeah. you know, we're still arguing over gas lines in with the war and we still got a massive undersupply of commodities, and there's a zillion reasons. So inflation's killing it by probably 15% a year. You're going to get taxed more. The banks will not guarantee that much of it. The trust in the banks is going. When you come to revolutions, you get bank runs. If there's a bank run, your money's gone. Do you know when you give your money to the bank, they, are, they now own your money? You think you own it. No, no, no. They own it. And you trust them that they'll give some of it back to you when you request it. But if there's a revolution, if there's a run on a bank, that money's gone. The next thing is quantitative easing and the continual printing of money and the debasement of fiat currency and the lack of trust in fiat currency. Now, this is, by the way, not abnormal. This is normal. It's just we haven't seen it because we're not 300 years old. If we were 300 years old, we'd be going, well, this is a normal part of stage five of the six stages of the cycle. This is what we do here. But we're not 300 years old. We don't get to see all the cycles going back. But there are a lot of indicators leading towards revolution in money, revolution in power, etc. Now, I'm, I'm not a doom monger. I'm a positive guy. And a big part of the reason I'm warning people about this is not to shit them up, it's to fucking get them excited about a potential up, swing upside opportunity. 
Because by the way, you know with inflation's 15%, because it's not 10%, do you know what's happened to the value of my assets? They've all gone up. Because when you get price inflation, but you also get asset inflation. So I've won as well as lost. So this is not all bad, but you need to know. So that's context for your, yeah. your question. So look, there's many different types of assets. And I'll just, I'm going to do an overview. No one should go and dump a load of money based on what I've said right now, because I'm yeah, doing an overview. This isn't investment advice. Well, just it's, to be clear. It's, it's my guidance. I'm not really saying it to disclaim myself. I'm saying it that... I'm going to give you an overview for some things to go and study. And you should invest in things you enjoy. So there's really two types of main asset. A capital-based asset and an income-based asset. So a capital asset is one that hopefully goes up in its value, but it has no income stream attached to it. You were talking about this watch earlier. Yeah. I don't get residual passive recurring income from this watch. But this watch, I think I paid 22 for it. I think it's worth 45 now. So that's made me 23,000 pounds. And you've enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed it. So that's something I'll come to. But it's actually made me nothing yet. Because you haven't realized it. Yeah, because it doesn't have an income stream. And when you do realise it, you have to calculate how much of that came from the, the, the lack of money from inflation, right? Well, when you do realise it, you've got to adjust, adjust inflation, sales costs, and if there are, any taxes. Yeah. This is why I don't really sell assets, and which is why when I do sell assets, I regret selling assets. I remember I interviewed Aston Merigold from JLS, and I asked him about what is a big misconception out in the world? And he said that a million pounds is a million pounds. And it's a really good answer. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you think you earn a million pounds because that's what they tell you you get paid. But your agent gets 20%. You get taxed 40%. You got A, B and C, other slice. You got 300 grand. Yeah, you? or you might, or less. Mm. This is why I said to you a million pounds in your earlier point is not enough. So this is why I mostly don't sell assets because, you know, there's those costs associated. But a capital asset is something that will go up in value but won't produce income. Now, I buy some capital assets. Well, why would you buy a capital asset if it doesn't produce income? Number one, I enjoy it. Number two, it's a hedge against other attacks on it or types of assets. Yeah. So watches and gold and art and wine and vintage cars and things like that. If you're passionate about those things, you get an immense amount of enjoyment out of them. I've just recently sold my hi-fi. I made about 10 grand on my hi-fi. So I had a quarter of a million pound hi-fi system that I passionately loved building over five years, doing all these demos and blah, blah, blah. But I bought it all secondhand and did a lot of research. And I had this enjoyment of listening to my favorite music on this quarter of a million pound hi-fi that I got for a lot less. And I sold it and I made on it. I didn't, there was no income. Um, by the way, there would have been some repair bills in it. So let's be honest, I, net, I netted zero. Yeah. But I basically 
got a free quarter of a million pound hi-fi system for a few years because I turned a passion into somewhat of an investment. So anyone listening, if you love cars, get into researching classic cars and get really good at buying vintage classic cars. If you love watches, get into studying Rolexes and APs and Pateks and everything else. If you love property, get in, buy an ugly thing, do, do it up yourself, turn it around. So capital is, gold is capital. Gold is pretty good right now because people don't trust currency. Mm. When currency is really low inflation and high trust, gold is going up really slowly. I personally, and I'm not advising, I'm just telling you, I would not invest in any, any asset that, gov that the government backs. I don't fucking trust them. So you know, bonds or whatever. Personally, I wouldn't right now. And even if, I, and even if their trust increases, th th there's a shift of power right now or a, a looming shift of power. Then you've got income producing assets. So that might be real estate, online real estate. You know, if you've got high traffic on a blog and then you do ads and affiliate yeah. on it, you, you've got a, an, an income stream there. Companies. Now, there's very few assets that you win three ways. You've got Capital, equity, and income. So capital is its appreciating value or depreciating. Equity is what you've got in that asset that you own. And then income is the income stream. So when you buy gold, there's no equity. When you buy Bitcoin, there's no equity because you buy it at today's price. When you buy property, you can get property 30% below today's price because it's a dump. Yeah. Or because you've got a repossession or a motivated seller. When the shit hits the fan, you'll be able to go and buy cheap Rolex Daytonas from ex-bankers in London. I bought loads of them in the last recession. They were flogging them off cheap. So certain assets, you can't get equity. You can only buy them at today's value, Bitcoin, gold. But others, like property and companies, you can buy them fucking cheap. You can buy them distressed. So I love companies. I don't buy them, I build them and real estate, property, because you can buy them cheap, so you've got equity, you've got capital appreciation, and you've got income. So the two best assets for all three, capital, equity, and income, is your own company and property, in my opinion. Now, look, stocks, you, you only buy them what they're worth today, but they may have come down. So you can't get equity in them, but you could buy them for good value today. And stocks are more passive than property or your own company. But, you know, realistically, you're going to get 5% income on your full stock portfolio. So you need a million in, you know, to make 50 grand a year and 50 grand a year ain't, ain't nothing at the um, moment. And where are you going to allocate then going into this recession hard? Like as, we, as we go into this recession, are you going to go, are you just going to go, you know, all in on watches and buying these. I'm not going to go all in on anything. I want. I think one of the dumbest phrases out there is "go big or go home," or rather, "go all in." Yeah. You know, it's a bit perpetuated by our American friends, many of them whom I'm friends with and I love. But you don't go big or go home. That's bullshit. You try hard today and see where you get, and then you get another chance tomorrow, and you try hard again, and then you, and every day you get a new chance. And going all in in one asset class is financial suicide. Warren Buffett doesn't do it. 
No, no investor with half a brain cell would say, go all in on one class. That is potential financial suicide. I know that wasn't your question, but I just thought it was a good thing to yeah, say yeah, to, yeah, your, yeah, to your sure. audience. So just be careful with some of these sound bites. You know, go all in. Go big or go home. No, no, I go big and I go home. I go big in the office and then I go home. And then my wife humbleizes me and makes me small. And then I go big in the office and then I go small at home. I, every day. And by the way, sometimes you can go too big. Sometimes you go that little bit too big and then it all falls down like a house of cards. So in terms of the all in, let's say there's a, a big correction, 30% in a year, which we have had in 2008, give or take, depending on the markets. Um, I would definitely be buying property, no doubt about it, because I know it. Yeah. I've been waiting for years for watches to come down. You know, I've got um, a watch dealer's a famous ex-footballer and he always takes the piss out of me because I've been waiting for years. I've been saying, look, mate, they just need to come down. They just need to come down. They just need to come down. But watches are really high at the moment and I've got a lot of knowledge on watches now. So when I think watches are priced fairly, I'm buying loads, but I love watches mm. and I get the utility of, you know, um, wearing them as well. So real estate, I'll buy a lot of. Um, watches, I'll buy a lot of. And I'll probably try and acquire some distressed companies to grow my... Yeah, so companies. You, so I've like, done that before, but only three times. I'm not an, a guru at it, but look for distressed companies in my niche that I could maybe buy and bring into my. So you, you're thinking about education companies. You're thinking about like you know if you need lettings businesses as well because I've got I've yeah. got 1,550 properties Mark, under management. Marketing businesses. Anything? Yeah, maybe anything that can help grow my existing business. Not like you know nurseries. A lot of people are buying nurseries. I don't know. I run a nursery. I think a lot of people buying companies are just buying massive liabilities because they don't know them. I know training businesses. I know marketing and sales businesses. I know lettings businesses. So, yeah, in, in a big correction, time to go shopping. Yeah. The sale is on. But out of all those, what, what do you, what, when, you st when we start getting the 10, 15% what, correction? What, 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 what? <laughs> but where, where do we go? Where, where do you go first, though? Because you, you, there's, there's three or four things there. All right, so I'll try and answer the question the way you want because I can't really answer it the way you want because I've got enough money to be able to do more than one of them at any one time. I, I, so, I, but the problem is that a, a lot of the people that listen don't have the capability of, of what you've got in terms of like revenue and stuff like that to do all three or four. But if they've got to do one, yeah, they might they might turn over one five million. They might not turn over what you turn over, but they might they might just say right, should I go all in on? On res, like buying. Don't go all in on anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what you're saying is, what investment should you do first if you can only do one investment? If you could only do one of those three, which one do you do first? Property. Because watches are a nice to have. Watches need insuring. Watches need repairing. Um, and they only have capital. And I love them, so I'm a bit biased because I get a lot of value out of them. You know, I don't walk around going, look at my 100 amazing staff on my arms. <laughs> but they're assets. But I don't enjoy them in the same way I look. Every time I look at my watches, I get pleasure. So um, It depends yeah. what staff you're looking at. Yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> that's true. Um, so, gun to the head, one investment that most people could do from a standing start that's the best leverage when there's a falling market, local buy-to-lets. Because you've got you'll probably be able to get them quite cheap. Yeah. 
You pro you'll get long-term capital growth and you've got income. And by the way, you learn a lot managing property. What do you learn about, what have I learned about buying watches? I know what watches go up and down. I've got a couple of yeah. dealers. You know, I know what watches not to wear in London. I know not to show my watches on social media. You know, I learned a bit, but you know, when you build a real estate business, you, fuck, you learn so much about running a business. So gun to head, property. Yeah, no, I like it. But, yeah. you know, obviously you've been mentored by John, like Diamartini, for a long time now, haven't you? you well, talk. I've learned a lot from John Diamartini, studying him and speaking to him. Yeah, so I would call him a, in many ways, a vicarious mentor. Um, and, yeah, we've had sessions with him, um, as I have many people. Because when I when I when I was younger, watching your content when I was back in Peterborough years ago, I remember you used to pay obviously to go to to do courses with him, didn't you? Yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, obviously he's out of all the mentors that I've seen come into your life over the last few years on social media and all this stuff that you've shown, he's the one that I've noticed has stuck around the longest period of time. Why why is that in your estimation? Well. If you had another gun to my head and said, like, who have you learned the most from out of everyone you've learned, and I've learned from a lot, it is by a country mile, Dr. John Demartini. Because his work transcends an individual niche. And in my opinion, it's the most accurate. Now, by the way, sometimes you don't want technically accurate. You want what motivates you. So a lot of personal development is not that accurate. Like the movement of po positivity. You know, there's a whole be positive. That's not an accurate assessment of personal development, but it's pretty fucking useful at times to get you G'd up. But in the end, it leaves you vacuous and disillusioned because everything has an opposite. And... There is no such thing as just 100% positivity. So across different areas of my life, this balance of polar opposites into a perfect whole, I can't disprove that theory, but I can disprove every other theory. You know, I'll give you an example. Is there any perfect person out there? No. Um, have you ever looked at someone and thought, oh, they're perfect, I'd love to be with them? Yes. And then have you got with them and then 10 years later divorced them? Yes. Why did you divorce them if they were perfect? Because you created the delusional fantasy that they were perfect and they weren't, didn't have imperfections. And then when you're divorcing them because all you can see is their imperfections and not their perfections that you saw 10 years ago. You know, I've got, I love Ferraris and many people will think, well, having a Ferrari is great. The insurance is really high. They go wrong all the time. Yeah. Um, I've got this aerial atom. It's the most exciting car in the world, but getting in it is fucking virtually impossible. It had a massive fuel leak and fuel just pissed into the um, cabin of the car. No other car would have a fuel leak where fuel actually pisses into the cabin of the car. <laughs> um, you know, you love your kids, but they fucking hell, you want to punch them out on a regular basis. So there is nothing that I have ever seen that exists that is either all good or all bad. And what people, what humans tend to do 
is it's right or wrong, it's good or bad, it's easy or hard, it's left or right. And, you know, John Demartini believes in this perfectly balanced, divine order of the universe. I would say different words. I would say the universe is what it is. But what we do is we think we know what it is with our own clouded judgment or our emotions fool us into thinking that it should be a different way to it is. I'll tell you the hardest fight you'll ever have. It's not Conor McGregor. It's not your divorce. It's actually not yourself. That's a hard fight. The hardest fight you'll ever have is with nature. Because you, you will never beat nature. Like, imagine trying to fight nature to make sure that it's sunny on your wedding day. You got, fuck, you got no control over that. The sun shines like it shines. The rain rains like it rains. And the natural laws of the universe are what they are. And you, you are a tiny quark dust speck of that. And you cannot fight nature. You actually can fight yourself and win because you can beat your own demons. You can be an alcoholic and defeat the demons. You know, I'm interviewing Paul Merson soon. He's got massive problems with addiction. But he's had weeks and months where he's beat it. I just interviewed Gaza. Those guys have lost fights against themselves and won fights against themselves. But you cannot beat nature. So the best thing to do is to understand nature. And by understanding nature, what John Demartini calls it def divine, divine perfection, i.e., this amazing infinite universe is pretty mind-blowingly a wow. Um, and what humans do is we resist the laws of nature because we don't understand what the laws of nature are. You know, a child will be a child. So you get pissed off with your kid acting like a child. But nature tells you it's a child. And a child acts like a child. And you want your child to not act like a child. So all the, you're the dumb shit. <laughs> you know, you're the delusional one. So no one really knows, and John certainly doesn't know that he's taught me this, but through his work, I, I believe wisdom is as accurately possible understanding what is not what you want it to be. So humans argue, John Demartini believes in wars and revolutions as their cycles. If you read Ray Dalio, he says, actually, in, in many instances, war is a good thing. In many instances, it's not, but in many instances, it is. So human beings cheat, human beings lie, human beings screw each other over, human beings fight to the death. We just haven't seen that fight to the death for a just under 100 years. It's fucking coming. We haven't seen a disruption to the fiat currency since 1971, I think. It's fucking coming. So I believe your life is better with less friction and less tension and more awareness and more presence and more beauty when you remove 
the fantasy that life should be a certain way. So for example, people always say to me, oh, Rob, how was that podcast? Well, it was how it was supposed to be. If I come out of this podcast going, damn, I should have been giving Frankie more sound bites. You know, I should have shouted more. I should have been more polarizing. No, no, no. This was supposed to be exactly how it was and it was supposed to take exactly how long it did. That's why John has lasted decades because his content is the most accurate mm. and he doesn't teach it like that, but he teaches that. And also because his highest value is teaching. When your highest value is teaching, you're going to do it for 40 years. When your sixth highest value is teaching, you're going to do it for three years. Because he could have literally hung it up and done it years ago, couldn't he, if he wanted to? Like, let's be honest, he's made enough money in life. Yeah. So each time my Lamborghini goes wrong, I can either get fucked off that there's another bill, or I can go, that's what happens when you own a Lamborghini. Because that is what happens. When you own a Lamborghini, you get critics, but you also get to take kids with terminal cancer in the fucking Lamborghini, and that's one of the most beautiful things you can mm. do mm. with a Lamborghini. And when you break down in a Lamborghini, as you saw firsthand, you, you, you want to break down in a Volkswagen Polo. You don't want to break down in a quarter of a million pound Lamborghini. I would have been happier if I'd been in a Lamborghini broken down than I was stuck behind you when you were broke down in a Lamborghini. Yeah. All right? Like, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, I am not saying I know how nature works because it's so much bigger than me. But here's what I know. I am the most stressed and anxious when I wanted it to be a different way. When I accept that how it is or was, was perfection and how it was supposed to be, I am, you know, like... It's very peaceful that way. You become more peaceful in yourself. Yeah, I think you do. You have less anxiety and tension. Now, by the way, that's not to say you shouldn't try and make things happen. You know, we wouldn't be flying rockets into space and we wouldn't have built pyramids if we didn't try and fight nature. You know, we're trying to do things that seem at that time superhuman. So it's not to say you shouldn't stop trying to affect the outcome. You should drive towards change and an outcome. But then you accept how it went. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, if my wife cheated on me, I know how I'd feel emotionally, but I also know that in my logical mind, I would say that was meant to happen. And that is a gift. And what can I learn from it? Now, you get to the point where it becomes a triggered exercise, but I'm just going to say it and people can take this how they want. But people who have experienced abuse or hard trauma those that recover from it find the meaning in it and actually see it as a gift. I'm friends with Mark Ormrod. He had three and a half of his four limbs blown off. And he said to my face, it's given me many gifts in my life I wouldn't have had. Fuck, I felt that. Yeah. I felt that. So... I'm not just saying this as someone sitting in an ivory tower as a multimillionaire. I've had to deal with my own challenges. Thankfully, I've 
you know, done all right so far. I've, I know I've got worse things to come, but I've had my own challenges. But the point is, like, if anyone's experienced trauma or abuse, it either makes you or breaks you, and that is true. And anyone who it's, they've turned it into something positive will tell you that there was a gift in it. Actually, the reality is there was an equal upside in it. And there was equal upside opportunity they didn't see at the time because they only see it as a downside. So hopefully I can help someone by saying if you're experiencing a lot of trauma, and sometimes trauma is absolutely justified and sometimes we create our own trauma, it was meant to be, accept it, see the gifts in it, count the upsides in it. You know, I've got a friend who's male who was kidnapped and raped when he was 20 or 21. And he sat and talked to me for an hour and he could see all the gifts and the upsides of that. And it's taken him a lot of fucking personal development and courses and everything else, but he's been able to transcend it. Now, on the other side of it, a lot of things you think are good right now, they have equal downside. I'll give you what I believe is the perfect example, a holiday. Holidays are usually not as good as we dream them to be. You wait at the airport for four fucking hours, they lose your bag. The food's nowhere near as good as you wanted. The accommodation wasn't what it looked like on the reviews. It's, it pisses it down the whole time. And actually, most of the time, or often, holidays aren't as great as your fantasy. Because you put the holiday right up there as a fantasy because you really need it. How can a holiday ever live up to that? What a holiday is, is a normal week in a different location with a different set of circumstances. That's what a holiday is. And if you accept that, you'll have a good holiday even when it's shit. I fucking hate holidays. So um, I'm always prepared for the downside of holidays. But anyone you're infatuated with, you know anyone you've fallen in love with? If you're infatuated with someone, you just don't know their downsides yet. Well, actually, you choose not to see their downsides. Yeah, because infatuation is blindness to the downsides. Yeah. Yeah, so unconsciously, probably, not consciously, you're choosing. So if you're looking for a partner, what you really should do is look at, okay, these things I like, what are the opposites of those that I might not? And these things that I don't like, what are the upsides of these that I might like? You have you've thought of all that like really in depth, haven't you? On 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 the things you will and won't accept into your life type type scenario, haven't you? Yeah. Well, I've definitely got better at what I accept and what I reject and what I stand for and what I stand against. But I still make crap decisions. Um, but just, but being an entrepreneur, I think at, over a period of time, seventeen years, right? Yeah, about that. 17 16 years. 16 and a half, is it? Yeah. Over the 17 years, I bet if you looked at it on a graph, you, you make less crap decisions per year, which means your everything goes up consequently, right? And there yeah. might be one standout year where you make a few more crap decisions than what you'd like to have made, but essentially all an entrepreneur is is someone who makes more better decisions than crap decisions. Well, maybe. Actually, maybe not. Maybe if everything has equal balance... Maybe one, you make 50% crap decisions and 50% good decisions. Maybe two, what 
defines the perception of a good decision and a bad decision. Because if we all look hard enough, some of our best decisions we thought were our worst decisions at the time and vice versa. So I think the journey of an entrepreneur is actually make, you make a higher volume of decisions and you back yourself to make those decisions right. So the thing with me is I get excited. So what happens is I'm like, oh, it's fucking great idea. This is a brilliant fucking decision. <laughs> and then I make that decision. Then all of a sudden the downsides start appearing. Right. But they were always there. I just got excited. But I'll make that a good decision and I'll justify it. So I will back myself to turn it into a good decision when you could argue in some ways it wasn't a good decision. I, I think with, with all decisions that you make in, in life or business or anything, I think when you, when you make it, and even if you, made set, even if you perceived 17, 17 to be good and three to be bad in that calendar year, even if you perceived that, right? You make those decisions, but, e but even these 17 that you've picked and you've won at, you might have won in business, but it may have cost you that 50% other in personal life that you've not seen and you've not taken account for. Is yeah. essentially what you're saying, Don, John, Don, John Martini means with that. Because he's saying if-, if the, Every upside has a downside. Every upside has a downside. So even if this perceived upside in business might be your marriage is failing over here. Might be, yeah. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So I learned that before I even knew who John Martini was. And that's, that's a physicist that said that. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I can't, I cannot disprove that theory. I cannot disprove that everything has an equal upside and downside. That box is good at carrying equipment, but it might have had a tree that cut it down. Like Joe gets all excited about her lenses. One lens might be good close up, but shit far away. Yeah. Um, the more expensive something is usually, the more temperamental it is. The more spontaneous and exciting your partner is, the more disorganized they are. So I think wisdom is understanding the upsides and downsides, the, the perfectly harmoniously balanced, simultaneously equal upsides and downsides in any situation. You have a, I remember when Audemars Piguet started putting rubber straps on their, their watches and I'm like, this watch is 70 grand and it's got a rubber strap. That is a joke. Should have a gold strap, but rubber is so much better because if, if you do that, you don't snap the strap. Mm. And it's quite easy for a thief just to hook out a metal strap. You can't, you cannot hook that rubber strap out. So the upside of rubber is security and flexibility. The downside is it's not as opulent. I, I don't want to sit here, I'm just giving random examples to prove. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, think, I think wisdom, going back on your comment on wisdom, I, th I think wisdom is just accepting it is how it, it, is, how it is, and you've, you've got, you just go out and you just go try your best and do the best that you can with what you've got at the time you've got it, with as much information as you have. And that's essentially what you're doing. But I think where we all go wrong is we all judge ourselves too much on, we could have made that different, could have made that different. Yeah, but you got, more, you got more information now than you had then. Because you, you look back on some of your decisions 
but when we look backwards, we always have more information than what we had at the time. You made the you you obviously made the right decisions as many as you could because obviously you're here now. Do you know what I'm saying? With 1,550 tenants, so so it's all worked out. But if I ask Rob Moore if he's got to check out the planet tomorrow, can't can't leave anything behind but just one pearl of wisdom, one clear line pearl of wisdom, and it can't be your quote on the bottle, right? What would you leave to the world? So it can't be if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. No, because because you, because that, that, as I've said that ten million that's times. That's ten million times. I want I want I want I want you to go in depth. I'll tell you something I've been thinking recently. And that is, be kind and strong. So often kind people are actually weak in that they subordinate themselves to other people. They put themselves down a pecking order and often they're being kind because they're trying to fill voids, cover shame and guilt, or they just put other people above them or justifying and covering up some kind of pain. Not always, but often, because I've done a lot of research on this stuff. So if you are a kind person who changes their mind all the time, lets people trample all over them, can't make hard or bold decisions. You're also a weak person. And especially right now in the world, we need strong people. So the Prime Minister of the UK, who's now resigned, in my opinion, was weak every time he lied or covered up something because he wasn't strong enough to tell the truth. Now I have sympathy, I have empathy for that because we all want to make the easy route or to lie. I know someone who asks me questions, he already knows the answer. And so there's a nanosecond where my emotions want me to tell a white lie. But then I think a strong person tells the truth, even if they don't like this answer. And also, I know he fucking knows the answer anyway. So, um, so being strong is, if you, if you do little things that upset me, being strong is giving you feedback or expressing it in the, at the right time in the right way. Being weak is holding it all in. I used to do that for years and I used to convince myself I was strong. I was weak because I couldn't handle conflict. So anyone who wants to change the direction of this country right now has to come in and fire half the fucking government and change half the fucking policy, but no one's got the bollocks to do it. But that's what needs to happen. And not just because failures of government, but because of where we're at in the cycle and what's been created. So some of it is cir circumstantial. So... Being kind is often an excuse for a weakness or often being strong is either being a bastard or being perceived as one. I want to be a strong, kind person, which means I want to do lots of really nice, kind shit. But I also want to make bold and brave and strong and correct decisions and not have anyone 
walk all over me. And I think that's a really good blend. And I know it wasn't a quote, and I wanted to give it context. So I would, it's not a, a sexy sound by ears, but be kind and strong. I like it because you put, you've put a lot of thought into it in terms of like how it comes together and the context around that. Do you know what I'm saying? So I really appreciate your time today, mate. Pleasure. Pre pleasure to have you on, man. And, and Thank you. You've, you've been your, your normal juiced normal up self. self. <laughs> Whatever that is. Do you know what? I've got, I've got a few uh, good, good, good sound bites in there for you guys at home. But like, do me a solid favor, right? Send me and Rob, Rob won't read his DM. Someone will read them for him probably. But <laughs> send us a DM. Let us know how the podcast went. Subscribe on all the channels. Do me a solid favor. Help me grow this YouTube channel as well. Much love to all of you. And thank you, Mr. Rob Moore. That was sensational. It's been a pleasure. Peace out. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything. <laughs> don't forget to subscribe to the Frankie Lee Podcast.